Welcome to Harvest Echoes from Harvest Baptist Church on Guam. Since our founding in 1975, pastors, evangelists, and missionaries have traveled from all over the world to Guam to speak to our people, preaching and teaching the Word of God. We're providing you access to this rich archive of sermons and lessons on Harvest Echoes. Our mission is to help people develop a heart for God. These messages, presented in conferences and special services at Harvest, seek to point you toward the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word. Today, a message from Pastor Kurt Skelly. It was presented in February of 2016. The title of the message, Break the Box. Mark chapter 14, look at verse 1. After two days was the feast of the Passover and of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might uh, take him by craft, take Jesus by craft, put him to death. But they said not in the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. Look at verse 3. This is really where I want to begin. And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious. We all know this story. She broke the box and poured it on his head, and there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of the ointment made? It might have been sold for more than 300 pence and had been given to the poor. They murmured against her. Jesus said, let her alone. Why, why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. For ye have the poor with you always, and whensoever ye will, ye may do them good, but me ye have not always. Look at verse 8. She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. What a real life story. The Bible doesn't tell us in Mark 14 what her name is, but we learn from John 12 that this is none other than Mary. Mary, the, the sister of, of Martha, the sister of Lazarus, who has now been alive a second time for six weeks. Jesus raised him from the dead just six weeks ago. And now six weeks later, Jesus is celebrating the Passover day at the home of one Simon the leper, just down the street, just down the street from where Mary and Martha and Lazarus live in Bethany, just over the hill, just over the mountaintop, the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem, just, just over the hill. And Jesus now is coming back to Jerusalem for the last time in his public ministry. Within days, people are going to be crying, crucify him. In one day, if you follow the chronology of John 12, in one day, they're going to be throwing down palm branches and throwing down their coats and saying, Hosanna, one day. The next day is Palm Sunday. This is all happening right at the end of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is in a meal. He's heating a meal at Simon the leper's home as he sat at meat. And back in Bible days, people didn't sit at meat like we do today, in a chair, at a table. They would uh, recline closer to the floor. They'd lay on almost like a little mat, and the table was set closer to the ground. And, and uh, when one would uh, sit down at the meal, his feet would extend out behind him. 
And so get the picture as the, the men, no doubt, are sitting at this meal, the disciples and, and Jesus and uh, perhaps some others, maybe even Lazarus is there and, and Martha and Mary and at least 17 guests. Just imagine as this woman, Mary, takes this, this, this container of, of, of ointment, aromatic a perfumed ointment, and pours the contents of the Bible calls that box. Don't picture a box, a container, almost like a flask, and pours that box, pours that container of ointment on the feet of and on the head of, if you compare both passages, the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, what, what an awesome picture. Sometimes we'll sing that song, broken and spilled out. Like, like box of ointment, really a great symbol of what our lives ought to be. Broken and spilled out like our brother saying tonight, whatever, whatever it takes, Lord. That's easy to say. It's easy to sing. But is that your heart cry tonight? As you examine your own heart, as you ask the Lord to search you and try you, as you examine your motivation, Lord, are we really saying to God, God, anything? Are we really saying to the Lord tonight, anywhere? Are we really saying to the Lord tonight, whatever? Lord, whatever. Whatever it takes. There's too much at stake. Whatever it takes, Lord, that's what I'm willing to do. Well, as I understand this passage, I just want to be a box-breaking Christian. I want to be one that learns how to break the box. Lord, I don't want any reserve Lord, like William Borden, like Adoniram Judson. Uh, Lord, I just want to pour my life out. I don't want there to be a drop left when I die or when Jesus comes. I want to give it all to him. I want to be a box-breaking Christian. I want you to see in the first place tonight the perfume that she emptied in verse 3. The Bible says, And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, and by the way, I think what the Bible's implying there is that Simon used to be a leper, and Jesus had healed him. Obviously, uh, Jesus would not be in the home of, and people would not gather socially in the home of one that had leprosy. I think the implication is clear that Jesus had healed this man. But whatever the case, they're in the house of Simon the leper. The Bible says, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious, very expensive. And the Bible says, and she break the box and poured it on his head. Again, the parallel passage, also on his feet. And then she wiped his feet with her hair. And so we see the parallel passages. What do we learn from that? Kurt, what's the Bible teaching? What is it about this perfume that she emptied? Well, can I just suggest this first of all tonight? The perfume that she emptied was typically, what she did on that day was typically the job of the family servant. Do you understand that? What she did that day was typically the job of the family servant. Now, back in Bible days, there were certain things that were expected when you would go into a home. Now, I don't know what the culture is. Uh, my wife is from Puerto Rico. And there are different customs they have in the home down there. I grew up in Connecticut. And where I grew up in my home, when you walk in the home, you don't take off your shoes. That's just the way it is at my house. I mean, it's just too cold to have to take them off and put them back on. You know, so we just leave our shoes on. And that's the custom. That's what we do. All my family, they're all Norwegians. But uh, I'll tell you what, my, my daughter-in-law, you go to her home, you take off your shoes. Or she, you know, she does the Filipino death stare, you know. I mean, she just, I mean, you just take off the shoes. I mean, she won't say anything, but yeah, they say a lot with their eyes. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> you know who I'm talking about. There are different customs. 
Uh, there are certain things that you would expect, though, socially or in hospitality when it comes to going to somebody's home. For instance, if you were to come to my home in Pittsburgh, you might walk through the door, and I might say something like this. I might say, well, it's so good to have you, and I might reach out my hand and shake your hand. I might say this, may I take your coat? May I take your coat? And I would take your coat, and I'd hang it up nicely, or if you weren't looking, I would just throw it on my bed, right? <laughs> and then I might say, may I get you something to drink? And you would say, sure, I'll have some Starbucks coffee. I'll say, it's down the road, okay? <laughs> but if you want some Dunkin' Donuts coffee, let me get you some, right? Those are niceties that we would expect, right? Those are things we would expect. Well, back in Bible days, there were some niceties that people would expect. Uh, some social norms that people would expect. For instance, back in Bible days, if someone were to come to your home, you wouldn't shake their hand, you would give them a kiss of greeting. And uh, you know, a kiss on each cheek, maybe you've seen it that way, a kiss of greeting. Well, I'm so glad that some social customs go away, because I don't want to see your big bearded face coming at me, okay? But uh, I'm, gl I'm just glad for the handshaking thing, okay? But there would be a kiss of greeting. Uh, another nicety back in Bible days would be the washing of feet. I think you've probably heard it explained before, but people traveled around in sandals on the dusty roads there in Israel, and I've been to the Holy Land on a number of occasions, and let me just tell you, it is a dry and dusty place for much of the year. And so it would be the job of, the expectation of a host to make sure that there was at least a basin of water by which a people could have their feet washed, and typically that was the job of the, the lowest person in the house, the, the family servant, or maybe the youngest child. And so there would be the kiss of greeting, there would be the washing of feet, and the third nicety would be the anointing of a little ointment, almost like an aloe, almost like a, a soothing, I mean it's dry and hot out in the sun, and to have a soothing aromatic ointment to place on one head would serve two purposes. Number one, it, it felt good in the, after the hot sun, and also it smelled good, and so it was just a social nicety. The host was responsible for that. Understand that what Mary was doing, although she did it in an extraordinary way, like that other woman in Luke chapter 7 at the house of Simon the Pharisee, they did it in an extraordinary way. What they did is they did ordinary things in an extraordinary way. She's just doing the job of the family servant. She's putting that ointment on Jesus' head. She's putting that ointment and washing his feet. If you look at John 12, she's kissing his feet. It's the job of the family servant. She's doing ordinary things in an extraordinary way. Hey, listen, if I'm going to be a box-breaking Christian, I need to have the mindset of a servant. I wonder, do you have the mindset of a servant? Do you have the mindset that there's no job that's too small for me to do if I do that job for Jesus Christ? There's nothing that's too small for me to do. There's nothing that's just too dirty for me to do. If it's for the Lord Jesus Christ, it's for the King of Kings. That's why John the Baptist said, I am not worthy to unlatch the shoe latch of Jesus Christ. Hey, John the Baptist said, I'm not worthy to do the least job. I'm not worthy to be the one that washes the feet. I want to serve Jesus. I want everything I do to be for the Lord Jesus Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. That's what I want to be. I want to be that kind of servant of Jesus Christ. Hey, the perfume that she emptied, it was the job of the family servant. Hey, not only that, it was a financial sacrifice. The Bible says it was an alabaster box of ointment, a spikenard, very precious. The disciples, in the next verse, they assigned a monetary value to it. They said it could have been sold for more than 300 pence. 
check it out, 300 pence was the amount that a typical wage earner would earn in one year. Can you imagine taking a year's wages and going down and buying a bottle of perfume for it? So this was an expensive box, an expensive container, maybe something that she had received as an heirloom, maybe the most expensive thing in her possession. But listen, she gave it all. She gave it all to Jesus Christ. It was a financial sacrifice. Well, you show me your checkbook, and I'll show you a lot about what's important to you. I think the work of the gospel at some point is going to take a financial sacrifice on the part of his people. I know we don't say a whole lot about that, but I wonder, is my walk matching my talk when it comes to what we say about the importance of the gospel? Hey, this job was the job of the family servant. This box that she broke, it was a financial sacrifice. But ultimately, what she was doing in verse 3 demonstrated her faith in her Savior. Well, that's why she did it. You say, well, Kurt, why, why didn't she just why didn't she just pour out the, that ointment in little increments? I mean, after all, if it's a box of ointment, why waste it all in one meal? If it's a box of ointment, why, why not just dole out a little bit now and a little bit next meal and when Jesus comes next year and next year and next year? I mean, why give it all? And here's why. Because for weeks, Jesus had been telling his disciples and anyone else that would listen, for weeks he had been telling them, I'm going to die. Remember up there in Caesarea Philippi, he said to Peter, I'm going to die. And Peter said, not so, Lord. We'll never let that happen. And Jesus turned and said, get thee behind me, Satan. Thou savest not the things that be of God. Jesus had been saying, listen, fellas, uh, I am a suffering servant. That, that went against all of Jewish preconception. I'm going to have to die. And aren't you glad that Jesus died? Because if, had he not died on our behalf, we could not be saved. But they just didn't want to see it. But there was one person it seems, that believed to Jesus when he said, I'm going to have to die. And that one person, it seems, that believed him was Mary. That one person that was dumb enough to just accept it by faith, that Messiah, the King, the Deliverer, will have to die, that flew in the face of everything they'd been taught in synagogue school. But there was one woman that believed what Jesus said, and ironically, it was the woman that sat at his feet. Others were covered about much serving. Others were too busy with their own agenda. But she was one that sat at the feet of Jesus. And when Jesus said something, she said, I believe it. And I'm not going to wait until death to prove it. I'm going to pour it all out right now. You know, there's coming a day when we're all going to believe the words of Jesus. There's coming a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This coming a day when everybody's faith will become sight. But I want to be the one right now that lives by faith. I want to be, be the one right now that believes what Jesus says and acts upon it by faith right now. I don't want to wait until that day when everyone sees it. Everyone looks back and says, oh, that's the way it was. I want to believe what Jesus says today. I want to be that kind of a box-breaking Christian. I wonder, are you a servant? I wonder, what's the degree to which you're willing to sacrifice for the cause of Jesus Christ? Does it show up in your schedule? Does it show up in your checkbook? Does it show up in the energy you expend? Does it show up? I wonder, what kind of faith are we truly exhibiting? Your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. A man says he has faith but has not works. Can that kind of faith save him? 
If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding, you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest there's one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac a son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect, and the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God and was imputed unto him for righteousness. He was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified, not by faith only. Likewise also, was not Rahab the harlot justified by works? When she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And boy, let's be people that don't just don't talk about it. But the world is dying and going to hell, and the church of Jesus Christ is talking about it. We're talking about it. We know all our isms and know our ologies, but we can't cross the street and tell someone about Jesus Christ. Listen, we've got to be real. And this woman Amidst all these disciples who should have known better, she was real. We see it in the perfume that she emptied. Real quickly, notice number two, the persecution that she endured. Anytime somebody endeavors to do anything for Jesus Christ, he's going to be criticized. Anytime somebody endeavors to do anything above and beyond what typical Christianity represents, he's going to be ostracized. And that's what happens right here in this passage. We see the perfume that she emptied in verse 3, but notice the persecution that she endured quickly in verse 4. The Bible says in verse 4 that there were some, it's interesting, it started with one, and you can read about him in John 12, you read the parallel passage. You know who the one was who spoke up first when Mary did this, the one? I'll give you 12 guesses, okay? Here's the one, Judas. Judas, see, her obedience was met with a critical response. Of all the people in the world that ought to have been applauding, of all the people in the world that ought to be undergirding and encouraging her in this act, you would think it would be the disciples of Jesus Christ, but isn't it so funny that sometimes the people that criticize us the most are the people that should know best? Sometimes the people that we have the most friction with are not people out there, they're people in here. And here we're disciples that ought to have known better. Here were full-time Christian servants that were saying, nah, we could have sold that. I mean, I was worth 300 pence. I mean, poor people that would have fed. Hey, by the way, have you ever noticed how easy it is to give away other people's stuff? Isn't that funny? It's always easy for me to give away your stuff. That's easy. Well, Judas, if you're really that concerned about giving stuff to the poor, then why don't you pass the plate? Why don't you be the first giver? No, he wasn't concerned about it at all. Matter of fact, John tells us his motivation was he was the treasurer and he had been skimming money off the top for some time and he was embezzling money. He wasn't concerned about the poor. He was concerned about himself. And criticism doesn't reveal anything about the person being criticized. It reveals everything about the criticizer. It was a critical response. Notice the crowd's reaction. Because it didn't just start, it started with one person, but it didn't end there. Criticism travels quickly. You know, truth travels by snail mail, you know? Criticism, that travels on email. Look at verse 4. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of the ointment made? 
for it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and been given to the poor. And they murmured, they, they, they murmured against her, they. There's Judas, yeah, that was wrong. We could have sold that for a lot of money. And all of a sudden, everyone else starts piping up. Probably Peter next. Yep, amen, brother Judas. But what, whatever, whatever happened, they were all criticizing her. Are you willing to stand in your commitment to Jesus Christ by yourself? There was a critical response. There was a crowd's reaction. Notice Christ's rebuke. Would you see it in verse 6? You know, it's interesting because for an, an indeterminate period of time, they're criticizing her. Now, can you imagine how awkward that must have been? As she's anointing the head of Jesus, the feet of Jesus, as she is engaged in this act of great passion and faith, to have people that ought to have known better saying, what a waste. What she thinks she's doing? I mean, can you believe her? These are people she respects. These are people that ought to have known better. That must have been very, very difficult. And where is Jesus while this murmuring is going on? He's right there. Now, I don't know how long he let the murmuring go on, but obviously the murmuring took place. Obviously the conversation was going on. Jesus didn't immediately come to her defense. See, sometimes in our lives we'll, we'll do things for the Lord and, and we'll feel like, man, no, no one's noticing. Or we'll make commitments to the Lord. It feels like, man, even Christian people don't understand me. And sometimes we'll, we'll, we'll ask the very faithless questions and say, well, where's the Lord? Oh, Lord, I'm doing this for you. Why am I being persecuted? Lord, I'm trying to be faithful. Lord, where are you? Listen, a silent Christ is not an absent Christ. Never confuse the two. A silent Christ is not an absent Christ. Jesus was there all the time. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. He was right there. Yea, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. It's going to happen. The servant's not greater than his Lord. Jesus said, it's going to happen, but I will be with you like that fourth one in the fire, like unto the Son of God. I'm right there with you. And Jesus was right there with her. And at just the right time, he spoke up. And watch what he says in verse 6. He says, let her alone. Leave her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. Hey, listen, are you willing to wait for the validation of Jesus alone? That's really what it comes down to. As we live our lives, as we exhibit our faith, as we make our sacrifices, as we endure persecution, are we willing to wait for the validating word of Christ? Because the last time I checked, that's what we live for. We live for that day when we'll hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And you might applaud me, and I might applaud you, and you might criticize me, and I might criticize you, but none of that matters. That was the whole argument of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 4. He said, listen, I don't even judge myself. We don't even know what's right until one day Jesus tells us. Are we living for the approval of one whose name is Jesus Christ? We see the perfume that she emptied. We see the persecution that she endured, but notice with me lastly the praise that she enjoyed. The word of Christ, the validation of Jesus, notice how Jesus validates this woman. See it, please, in verse 6, and we're just about done. And Jesus said, let her alone. 
Why trouble ye her? Now watch this. He praises her, first of all, for a work or a task that is good. Watch it. She hath wrought a good work on me. Don't you love that? Who gets to define if a work is good? Jesus does. I think there's going to be a lot of works one day that will stand the test of the fire of Jesus Christ that will be found to be nothing but wood, hay, and stubble. What makes a work good? That it's grandiose? That it's impressive? That people applaud it? That it was born out of talent or, or, or great resources? What makes a work good? What makes a task good is that the person for whom we do the task. What makes a task good is the person for whom we do the task. And even a little cup of water, if it's in Jesus' name, even a cup of water, if it's in Jesus' name, it makes it good when we do it for him. The love of Christ constraineth me. That's what Paul says. I do what I do for him. She was praised for a task that was good. She was praised for the timing of the gift. Notice what it says in verse 7. He said, the poor you have with you always, and whensoever you will, you may do them good, but me you have not always. Here's what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying, well, you know what, don't, don't, don't do good to the poor. Jesus was not saying, well, you know, it's a bad thing to sell your possessions and give them to the poor. I mean, because the, the early apostles did that. Jesus wasn't denying that we should do good for the poor. As a matter of fact, Jesus' entire ministry is about poor people. Nothing wrong with that. Here's what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, the priority is me. That's why he uses the time term three times in verse 7. He said, the poor you have with you always, time, and whensoever, time, you may do them good. Me, you have not always. Jesus wasn't saying, don't do good to the poor. Jesus was saying this, just make sure you put me first. You know why? Because when you put the big rocks in your life first, everything else fits. When you put Jesus and prioritize him in your life, he will come alongside of you to do everything else. That's why it's important you put Jesus first in your day, first in your week, first in your finances, first in your heart. And so why Je it's important for Jesus to be first. Why? Because when Jesus is first, the other priorities tend to line up just right. He was praising her for the timing of the gift. You put me first. Watch this lastly. Not only was she praised for the task that was good and then for the timing of the gift. Look at verse 8 and verse 9. She, she's, she's done what she could. She's come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Look at verse 9. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel is preached. What an audacious statement. Throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. Let's put that claim of Jesus to the test. Wheresoever the gospel's preached. Well, okay, we're in Guam. Pretty hard to get any further away. Who are we talking about? We're talking about this girl. You know why? Because she lived for eternal things. God, I want my heart to be yours. I want my stuff to be yours. Lord, I give it all. I break the box. You've been listening to Harvest Echoes and a message titled Break the Box from Pastor Kurt Skelly. It was originally presented in February of 2016 at Harvest Baptist Church on Guam. Harvest Echoes provides you access to a rich archive of sermons and lessons presented at conferences and special meetings at the church. Send us a comment or question 
by visiting our website, hbcguam.org, hbcguam.org. And thank you for listening to Harvest Echoes. <laughs>